Thanks for joining us on the American Masters Podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. In this episode, we focus on the life of the first lady of song, jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. Behind Fitzgerald's vocal prowess and onstage success was a troubled childhood spent in and out of reformatory programs. We begin with New York Times reporter Nina Bernstein, who wrote a 1996 piece on Fitzgerald's early childhood and discovered firsthand accounts of the time she spent at the New York Training School for Girls in Hudson, New York. Bernstein recounts the harsh realities faced by Fitzgerald in this segregated child welfare system of the 1930s, which served as a dark precursor to her storied singing career. The training school for girls at Hudson, New York, was a state reformatory. Uh, the girls who were sent there were generally not serious delinquents. They were just uh, throwaways in many respects. They were children who were abused, who were neglected, perhaps were truant. I'm working on a book about child welfare in New York, and it involves a class action lawsuit against the foster care system of New York. And the named plaintiff was a girl who was sent there 40 years after Ella Fitzgerald. And I did a lot of uh, research into the history of the place. And one of the things that I discovered talking to old counselors from there and the former superintendent was that Ella Fitzgerald had been an inmate, in effect, there in the earlier mid-1930s. I was fascinated and tried to find out more. I uh, interviewed a number of people who remembered her there, including a former teacher who remembered her as uh, having been a perfectionist, uh, remembered her penmanship as being perfect. I interviewed um, the last superintendent of the institution who remembered how uh, they had tried to invite Ella to come back uh, when she was famous in the, in the 60s, there was a, an assistant superintendent uh, named Muriel Jenkins who wanted her to come back as a, as a kind of role model for girls who were there. And uh, she refused to have anything to do with the place. She hated it. And the, the uh, story that came back was that she had been held in the basement of one of the cottages and, and all but tortured. And, and in fact, it fits with a lot of what I learned about the institution and the history of this place over the years, really from its earliest uh, time as a uh, house of refuge for women, as it was called in the 1880s when it was founded. I think that she really was uh, abused there, and I think it was a traumatic experience for her, and she didn't want the institution to be in any way associated with, with her success or to associate herself with, with it. Why was she there? Well, she was orphaned. Uh, and, I mean, the truth is, it's very hard to determine exactly what happened because the records have been destroyed for the most part and recollections are, are different. But my understanding is that after her mother died, uh, she was left with a stepfather who may have abused her. She was sent to live with, I believe, an aunt in Harlem. And I think she felt unloved. She certainly 
uh, was not able to, did not continue with school. She had been a very good student, as I understand it, originally in the lower grades. And uh, she was uh, a truant. Uh, she was on the street. I believe she spoke in one interview about uh, warning the uh, women in the sporting houses, as uh, they were called, that the cops were coming. So uh, putting the pieces together, the, the likeliest story that I came up with was that uh, the police caught up with her. She was taken into custody, perhaps as a truant or as a child in need of supervision or wayward child. These were the kinds of terms that were used over the years. And I think that she, um, one possibility is that she was sent to the Colored Orphan Asylum at Riverdale, it was the one uh, institution for wayward children. It was sort of the stop before uh, the reform school. And it was the only place that accepted black children. And it was completely overcrowded at that point. I mean, this is, we're talking about perhaps uh, 1932, 1933. It's the Depression. You have the black migration uh, from the South. And uh, I think a lot of these uh, charitable institutions which had, they had support, they had some public support, but they were basically private institutions. They would send the troublesome teenagers, uh, they would ship them away rather readily to the state training school to make room for younger children. And I believe that's what happened, that basically she didn't have anybody willing to take her in. She didn't have a place to go. Perhaps she was a rebellious adolescent. And she ended up in this place up the Hudson River with a very harsh and uh, really punitive regime. Is this uh, something, it's something that goes through the courts? Yes, that's, that's right. Um, it would have been through the courts. There would have been a petition to the family court or the juvenile court, and she would have been committed to uh, the state. Her custody would have been transferred to the state for placement at the training school for girls at Hudson, which meant that uh, really they had the say-so, where she would go, how long she would stay. What rights would she have in this procedure? Really, n none whatsoever. It's really very hard for an adolescent in that situation because she doesn't have autonomy. Uh, the best you can have is someone who is advocating for you as a, a, a parent, and she didn't have that. And certainly she wouldn't have been represented by counsel at that point. So uh, she was just uh, powerless in the situation. She was shipped to this place, up uh, a strange place, with run by strangers. There were these places called cottages. They were really these brick uh, buildings that had been built in the 19th century, most of them. Um, they housed 20 to 25, 25 to 30, something like that, girls. And out of the 17 of them, two had been designated for black girls. And they were overcrowded, they were the most dilapidated ones. And what the investigation found was that, in fact, these girls were uh, routinely beaten by male staff. So the story that she had been confined to the basement and all but tortured really fits, in my mind, with that. I think they used solitary confinement as uh, discipline. So I, I can well believe that uh, she could have, especially if she was someone which she must have been, with a lot of guts and uh, a strong will, that she would have run afoul of 
of the system there and could have been punished in that way. How does uh, one get out of a place like that? Well, legally, you would be paroled. You could be paroled to a foster family. You could be paroled to a relative. Um, you, the commitment, her commitment probably would have been until age 18. So until her 18th birthday, she would still have been under the authority of the state. And what's fascinating about what happened to uh, Ella Fitzgerald is that technically, she was paroled to Chick Webb's band. That's what I was told by Gloria McFarland, uh, who was the psychologist at Hudson, at the State Training School for Girls, between 1955 and 1963. And she described for me how she actually looked in the records. She had access to the files, the old files. And she uh, had heard, of course, from other people at the institution that Ella had been there, and she pulled Ella's file. And there, that was to her the most fascinating thing, that, that they had a notation that Ella had been paroled at Chick Webb's band. Well, I'm sure that what happened was that Ella, like so many other uh, foster children uh, or, or former uh, children of the system, she had to survive essentially from hand to mouth when she was let go. She was out there, as I understand it, she was dancing for tips on 125th Street. She was uh, sleeping where she could. She, she was basically what we would have called homeless. And her sheer talent and good luck got her this, this place, this opportunity. Whereas, as I understand it, uh, Charles Linton persuaded Chick Webb to let her sing with the band. And I think that then the state essentially put the imprimatur of, of authority on this arrangement. How recently did this school exist, and what were the conditions? Well, the school continued. The training school was uh, in existence until uh, 1976. I really think that the conditions did not change a lot. There was a, certainly an effort uh, to reform it. Uh, Tom Tunney, the last superintendent, considered himself a reformer. Uh, he did away with the punishment cottage that was had still been there since the 1920s. But on the other hand, he created a behavior modification cottage that uh, reprised a lot of the uh, methods that were used back in the early days, you know, in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, so, unconsciously, I would say. So, I, it was not a good place. It was not a good place for children. Institutions, basically, are not good places, which is something we tend to have uh, forgotten. We, we seem to go through these cycles where we uh, think of them as a place to rescue children all over again. You know, it's the same system that exists in, in prisons, that you have trustees who essentially run the show. I think what happens is that uh, the institution essentially abdicates its authority or delegates its authority to the toughest uh, inmates. And the same thing is true in this kind of uh, reform school. The toughest uh, gangs of girls, the toughest uh, counselors, quote-unquote, uh, counselors, run the show. And uh, it's very hard for, especially, I would say, for a girl of spirit, uh, someone who has a mind of her own, a will of her own. I'm sure that uh, that Ella, who who essentially 
grew up with a strong sense of herself and who she was must have, it must have been terrible for her there. There are, well, there are people who really are broken. Uh, in fact, they had a whole system there of, um, well, they had a system of solitary confinement and they had, uh, they would take away a, a girl's clothing. A girl would be put alone in a room with uh, mattresses uh, around the, you know, padded cell, essentially. And some of them literally went crazy from the strain of solitary confinement, of uh, abuse by, by others. I mean, essentially, I think there were people whose spirits were broken. And then there were other girls who ran away. Running away from Hudson was something that happened Absolutely, from the from the beginning. I mean, one of the, uh, I think, in the first year that the place opened in the in 1887, there were there were runaways. And in 1904, when it opened as the when it changed to the training school for girls uh, 12 to 16, the, the the first girl who was admitted under the new name later ran away. <laughs> so that was that was sort of the, the the choice. You did your time, you got through. You, perhaps you were broken or you, you ran away, and Ella may have run away. Now, this is called a training school. Mm -hmm. What were the black girls being trained to do? The black girls were, 66% of them, I believe, had cleaning assignments, laundry assignments. Essentially, what this training school did was to use the labor of the girls to run the institution. And in particular, the black girls were confined to the most menial tasks. And the, the laundry, you couldn't even argue that they were being taught uh, how to be laundresses because the, uh, the equipment was out of date. And the, the argument was, well, this was the work that they wanted to do. They, they preferred this work, and you know, that was one of the arguments that was made. But there was, in 1936, a, a complaint, and, and uh, there was an investigation of the conditions, and they found that uh, definitely the, the black girls were being discriminated against and uh, had been confined to. They didn't have as much schooling. They weren't given the more interesting assignments. For instance, there was a, uh, there was a school store uh, where girls could practice uh, being cashiers and selling things and so forth, and they were not allowed to be part of that. And um, the woman who ran the place, I mean, it's one of these ironies. She was a reformer. She was had been, in her day, considered a reformer. And one of the things she prided herself on was a choir, a girls' choir. They went and sang for various uh, churches and institutions and, and women's groups. Well. Ella Fitzgerald couldn't sing in the choir because the choir was all white. Black girls were not allowed to sing in the choir. And I was told by a woman named Beulah Crank, who was a teenager at the time in Hudson, that she had the privilege of hearing Ella Fitzgerald and a small group of black girls who were invited by the local black AME church in Hudson to sing, I think to make up for the fact that they were not allowed to sing in the official Hudson Choir. They sang in the AME church, and Beulah Crank never forgot sitting there with her parents and hearing Ella sing, and she said she sang her heart out. You found out these things uh, before Ella died. That's right, I did. And I, I wrote Ella Fitzgerald's publicist a, a letter, a long letter, 
uh, describing what I had found and uh, trying to persuade her to respond. I felt that this was the right time, would have been the right time to acknowledge this part of her life. I mean, clearly this was so painful to her that she didn't want to ever talk about it or acknowledge it. And yet it seemed to me that the fact that there were so many other girls like her who had suffered in this way, uh, she really, she could put a face on those, that suffering. She could, we could find out that these anonymous children who had been harmed by the system had the face of someone we cherish as a nation. And uh, so I wrote this letter and I was told that it was passed on to her and I never got a reply. I mean, basically she kept her silence, but I certainly felt that had it not been accurate, and I'm, I'm sure that it is, but she certainly could have denied it or uh, you know, told me I was mistaken or had that come back to me. And of course, she was already quite ill, I think, at that point. It was 1994. But I really don't know the, how much she constructed another story for herself, and perhaps you're discovering that, how, how much she constructed another story and how much bits and pieces of this emotional history came out in other ways. June Norton, a close friend of Ella Fitzgerald, reflects on the impact the school had on Ella. She would lapse into some recollections. And um, I was always happy when she would do that. It didn't make her sad. Uh, she would think about some of the comical things, you know, like she would get away from this home and she had to climb over a fence. And back there in those days, we women had to wear bloomers. <laughs> and she would say, gosh, can you imagine seeing me up on the top of that fence with bloomers on? And I said, yeah, because <laughs> they're horrible when you haven't seen them on somebody else. So... Um, that really gave her a charge because uh, it stayed vividly there. Um, so it was never far from her remembering what had gone on in her life. How did she get high? I mean, that's, she was really young. You know, she knew, she'd run into other kids, the young ones out there in the street, um, that she probably was running numbers for people who would just use the kids to go and do something, and she just delivering something. And actually, it was running numbers, but she didn't realize that that was, I think, illegal. And if she did, you know, she had to live. And there were a lot worse things she could have done. The, the safety net was gone. And so just she was truant because she didn't have any place to go, no home, after her mother died. She never cried in her beer about circumstances because it wasn't going to make things different. It wasn't going to change what was. And so the best she could do was to pick up from there and go on. And uh, knowing that we all have something that has happened over which we have absolutely no control. And uh, knowing that people who loved her would love her anyway. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for digital archive gems, past episodes, and more.
You can also find American Masters on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.